Today we're going to be talking about transcendental dependent origination. So in the last couple of days we've been talking about what is dependent origination. And I've explained to you that really it's an elaboration of the first and second noble truths. When you see the arising of dependent origination from ignorance all the way to suffering, that is the first and second noble truth. <coughs> when you notice the cessation of each of the links of dependent origination, that's the third and fourth noble truth. But now we'll go specifically into what is known as transcendental dependent origination, which is all about the path leading to the end of suffering and also the organization or culmination, let's say, of the Eightfold Path, the understanding of the enlightenment factors and their application and so on. So here you have a, a chart which shows you the different links of dependent, transcendental dependent origination. It says here faith, but before we go into that, we have to understand that the faith that we're talking about is dependent upon suffering. So actually, suffering is, in that sense, the first link of transcendental dependent origination. You don't come onto this path unless you've had enough suffering. If you haven't suffered enough, then what are you doing here? Right? So the Buddha has said that suffering leads to two things. One is further confusion. That is to say, some people will have different kinds of suffering. They'll have bodily pains, they'll have mental anguish, they'll have depression, they'll experience the death of their loved ones, <coughs> they'll experience illness, and so on. But how do they deal with that suffering? Usually what they'll do is try to replace or numb that suffering with sensual pleasure. So they will do things like decide that they're going to distract themselves from that suffering. They're going to binge watch the latest show on Netflix, or they'll have a couple of drinks, or they'll take some drugs, or do some kind of sensual pleasure, or indulge in some kind of sensual pleasure. And all that leads to is further confusion and ultimately further suffering. So they're not really coming out of that loop. Suffering, confusion, suffering, confusion, suffering, confusion. But when you've had enough suffering, when you realize, okay, there must be some other way out of this suffering. That is the beginning of your path. And this is what is understood as taking you to the search. And it's described in the suttas as where a person says, who knows a word or two about suffering and the way leading out of suffering. In other words, now you go on YouTube and you search meditation retreats. And then you find yourself registering for this retreat and you find yourself coming here. 
right? So you've done the search, literally done the search on YouTube. Most people who come to the practice of TWIM, they're doing it because they've watched a video or, and that video was set on by their <coughs> interest in spirituality or their interest in neuroscience or their interest in meditation because intuitively they understand that there must be a way out of suffering. And that begins the process of faith, also known as sadha in Pali. So this faith is not some kind of blind faith. Nobody here is asking you to take my word for anything. Absolutely don't, right? See for yourself how this process works and then apply it and see if it makes sense. <coughs> so nobody is asking you to blindly believe the words I say, blindly just read the suttas or anything like that. This is a process of experimenting, seeing for yourself what works and what doesn't work. And so the open-mindedness of let me see if this works and actually trying it out, not just half-heartedly trying, trying it out, by the way, not just saying, let me check out this meditation retreat and, you know, it's all the same. Everything leads to the same thing. So I'm just here on retreat and I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm not going to listen to the teacher. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? That's not the kind of experiment, uh, experimenting and open-mindedness we're talking about. Actually do the practice, right? See for yourself and apply it. Otherwise... You're wasting your time, right? If you're coming here half-heartedly to just apply what you already know, rather than letting that go for the next, you know, for these last few ten, these last ten days, just letting them go and trying out this practice and seeing for yourself. If you're not doing that, then you actually don't have conviction. You don't have that open-mindedness. But if you do let go of this, the practices you've done before and just say, I'm going to start fresh with a beginner's mind, right? The beginner's mind is so important. It's essential for progress on this path. Many times, you know, in an interview, somebody will come in and say, well, this is what I experienced um, in the meditation. And, but this is very similar to what I experienced when I applied it here in a previous meditation. So they'll bring in their previous experiences. They'll bring in what they think they know and so on and so forth. But it's actually detrimental to them. It does not help them. Mixing practices, mixing philosophies, mixing ideologies, mixing different kinds of things with the idea that it all leads to the same thing is ultimately taking one step back and 10 steps backward. Because you're not going to go anywhere by doing that. If you completely drop everything and have some level of implicit trust in this practice and just do it as it's been instructed to you, you will notice amazing milestones in your practice. So that open-mindedness and the willingness to try it as it's been instructed 
is the beginning of this so-called faith. Eventually, that faith turns into conviction born of direct vision and experience. That faith, that conviction, is born of seeing for yourself after applying this practice and experiencing for yourself the Four Noble Truths, coming to a basic but ultimately experiential understanding of suffering and the cessation of suffering, seeing it for yourself. When you have that open-mindedness, you also commit to keeping the precepts, taking and keeping the precepts. There is a series of suttas in the Anguttara and Nikaya, in the Book of Tens, that starts with <coughs> 10.1 all the way to 10.5. And there, <coughs> it has a similar sequence of this transcendental dependent origination. All that's different is instead of faith, it talks about what's known as virtue. It starts off with virtue. So faith and virtue are intertwined. What does that mean, virtue? Sila, keeping your precepts, making a commitment to take your precepts every morning. This is essential. This is non-negotiable because when you do this, you are uplifting your mind. You might not see it for yourself right there and then, but it has an effect throughout the day. Because once you shift your intention to saying, I am going to keep the precepts, then your mind will make that commitment automatically. In other words, there's a temptation to tell a little white lie, or there's a temptation to maybe take this or borrow that. But immediately, because you've taken the precept in the morning, it says, is this right? Should I be doing this? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. This is your moral compass that allows you to know what is wholesome and unwholesome. But that, that compass is further strengthened by the daily commitment to keep it, the daily taking of it. As a result of doing this, what happens over time, when you start to take these precepts, and you actually follow these precepts, you're going to notice that your mind has a certain level of relief. This relief is a sense of non-regret. That's the next step in that Anguttara Nikaya text, where it talks about virtue leads to non-regret. Meaning there are no regrets. I am secure, my mind is secure in the fact that I keep the precepts. And there's another certain level of conviction that nothing untoward will happen to me because I'm keeping these precepts. If you only knew the power of keeping these precepts and what they actually mean, if you kept them for a very long time, you will see amazing things happen in your life. For one, if you keep the first precept, what will happen is you will always be in situations that are secure and safe. You'll never find yourself in situations 
where there is danger. And if there is, your path goes away from it. And this is the culmination of keeping that precept for a long time. A very long time. When you keep the second precept, people become generous towards you. Life becomes generous towards you. Because you don't have that covetousness that I need this or I have to get this or anything like that. Whatever you require in that moment, if you even think about it for a moment, suddenly it's there. If you keep the third precept, what you will notice is you are content all the time. And in that contentment, there is this very secure happiness. And everything else that's given on to you is just the icing on the cake, the cherry on the top, right? You're not looking for things outwardly. You're... <clears throat> Your compass is so straight that it doesn't swerve from here to there. And your relationships with yourself and with others around you are always harmonious. You have very few misunderstandings, if at all, with people. Right? People will always give you the benefit of the doubt. In other words, if somebody is saying something about you, People know that that's not you, right? If somebody's gossiping about you, people will realize, no, that's, that can't be it, right? Because they have a harmonious relationship with you when you keep this third precept. When you keep the fourth precept, this is a very powerful one, right? Abstaining from any false speech, abstaining from any harsh speech. When you keep it for a very long time and you perfect keeping this precept, what you say manifests. You will always speak to the, the truth every single time to the extent that whatever it is that you say will happen. And when you keep the fifth precept, right, abstaining from indulging in any kind of intoxicant, your mind is always clear. You never have any kind of sloth and torpor. You have an unbounded energy that is balanced all the time. Even if you haven't rested for some time and you have to go and do something, your mind is pristine all the time. This is the power of the precepts, keeping the precepts. It's almost like you obtain certain kinds of psychic faculties when you keep these precepts for a long period of time. There was, um, I don't know how many of you know about the story of Bhante Dhanaramsi. If I remember correctly, he was saying that uh, there was this uh, man who said, you know, I want to be very wealthy. I want to be very rich. What do I do in order to be very wealthy? And Bhante says to him, keep the precepts. And he says, how long do I have to keep the precepts before I actually see some effect? And Bhante says, a minimum of a hundred years. 
So keep the precepts no matter what. You will, <coughs> you will see a direct effect of doing that. And one of the most profound um, effects of that is that your mind being very clear starts to let go of hindrances naturally. And so now you experience relief from hindrances. And that leads you into what is known as pomoja. Pomoja, or uh, gladness, is the gladness of the Dhamma itself. So your conviction to say, let me try this out, let me make a commitment to keep the precepts, leads you into seeing the direct benefits of it. And you become gladdened in the Dhamma naturally. Now you have an interest, you have a zeal, you have a zest for Dhamma. You want to read Dhamma books, you want to watch Dhamma talks, you want to read the suttas, you want to attend retreats, you want to meditate for longer periods of time. That happens naturally. If you don't keep your precepts, and if you don't <coughs> experience that relief, and you try to meditate, that's the key. You're trying to meditate. You're, you're, you're forcing yourself to meditate. But if you keep the precepts and actually experience relief from the hindrances, your mind naturally gravitates towards wanting to meditate. Not in the sense of forcing yourself to meditate, but in the sense of it naturally becomes quiet. And now, as a result of that, you start to experience pithi. As a result of relief from that, you experience pithi. So this is the beginning of seeing the first jhana. Born of seclusion. Born of letting go. So not only is that happening, what also is happening is, since you're keeping your precepts, you're making the effort. And the reason you're making the effort is because you have investigated for yourself what is wholesome and unwholesome. Born of mindfulness. So in other words, naturally you're bringing up the enlightenment factors. Now you have brought up mindfulness. You are becoming more alert. You're becoming more attentive of how your mind's attention moves from one object to the other. You're becoming more clear in your mind. You're becoming more aware of what it is that you're doing in whatever it is that you're doing. When you're eating, you're aware of your eating. When you're walking, you're aware that you're walking. When you're speaking, you're aware that you're speaking. When you're driving, you're aware you're driving. Your mind isn't going up somewhere. It's not, it's not uh, daydreaming. It's not going off into la-la land. It's here, right now, in the present moment. And as a result of that, you become more attentive towards what is wholesome and unwholesome. This is what is meant by Dhamma Vichaya. So this is what's happening. You see the direct benefit of keeping the precepts, keeping sila. And so now you have the energy to meditate, the virya, the strength, the power, the ability to meditate. As a, as a result of which, you start to experience piti. That's the next enlightenment factor that you experience. Now, what else are you doing? You're also bringing up the Eightfold Path. You've come to a point where you realize <coughs> <coughs> there must be another way out of suffering. 
This realization is the beginning of mundane right view. That my actions have certain kinds of consequences. That there must be another way out of suffering rather than just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then you have the intention to let go, nekhama. Then you have the int intention to cultivate compassion, to cultivate loving kindness. This is all part of right intention. And then by keeping the precepts, what are you doing? Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Then making the effort to meditate and let go of hindrances, what are you doing? You're bringing up right effort. As a result of which you have right mindfulness, understanding what is going on in your mind in every moment. From that piti, then you experience tranquility, pasadi. So what is that tranquility? That tranquility is born of letting go, letting go of the hindrances. When you experience the benefits of meditation, one of the big benefits you experience is a mind that is tranquil, a body that is tranquil. You have less agitation in your body. You have more stability, right? You're able to sit for longer periods of time without moving around. There's less pain in the back, less pain in the legs. And so what are you doing by tranquilizing? You are letting go of bodily formations. You are stilling bodily formations when you're absolutely still. And as your mind starts to get into the second jhana, what happens? You stabilize in your object of meditation. And now you're experiencing the stilling of any verbal formations that could lead to thinking and reflecting and analysis. Rather, you are just there. So this is the tranquility that you experience. As a result of that tranquility, you experience the third jhana. So this is the beginning of the third jhana. And then the full-blown third jhana has what's known as sukha. That's the main highlight that is translated here as happiness. But I like to translate it as comfort. There's a sense of ease. There's a sense of comfort in the body. Right? If you've ever had the luxury of stepping into a warm bathtub, right? And just letting your whole body relax. That, that relief that you experience from that, that is sukha. It's a bodily experience of comfort. And there is contentment there. Which means now the mind isn't looking outward for this or that. It is content within itself. It is happy just because. There is no just because even. It's just happy. It's a baseless, causeless happiness. Independent of anything outside of itself. This is true happiness. Unconditioned happiness. Right? Happiness not born of anything. Just content. Now, while you're here, your mind becomes very collected. 
And as a result of being collected, your mind experiences stability, samadhi. Remember when we talked about samadhi, right? What is samadhi? Total even-mindedness, complete balance in the mind. Now you have unification of mind, ekagata. The mind remains steady, mental collectedness and composure remains around its object of meditation with ease, naturally, without very little effort required. So now what has happened up until this point? <coughs> up until this point, what you've experienced is, first you've experienced faith, and you have the mindfulness to realize that if I keep the precepts, it is of great benefit. So you make that effort born of Dhammavichaya, as a result of which you experience joy. You experience Pamoja, then you experience joy. And then you experience tranquility. That's the next enlightenment factor that you experience. And tied to that is the Sukha. Right? So now, at this point, when you're experiencing collectedness as the link, what you're experiencing is all four jhanas having been fully developed. At that point, your mind remains completely undisturbed. Even if there are thoughts coming in your mental vision, you have such pure mindfulness that it's just okay. It just goes right through and doesn't allow the mind to go in that direction. It remains steady. It remains stable. But it's not one-pointed. It's not focused to the point that it's not able to see other things. So the collectedness here is very open. So that if hindrances do come up, the mind can just naturally look at it, let go of it, and come back. And at this point, it is as easy as that. There's very little effort needed to be, I have to recognize, I have to relax, I have to re-smile, I have to return. It just happens in a flow. Now from this collectedness, there is what is known as knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yatta, Buddha, Jnana, Dasana. Yatta, Buddha means things as they actually are, right? Jnana means knowledge. Dasanam means vision. So what does that mean? Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. It means you're seeing things, you're seeing reality for what it actually is. Now you're starting to experience <coughs> the understanding of the three characteristics. But this is due to your mindfulness. This is due to your ability to be equanimous. So, yata bhutta jnana dasanam is just a very uh, fancy synonym for upeka. Because what is upeka? What is equanimity? Equanimity is the ability to see things as they actually are without getting affected one way or the other. If it's an unpleasant feeling, the mind doesn't gravitate against it. It doesn't say, I don't like it. It just says, 
okay, there's an unpleasant feeling here. If it's a pleasant feeling, the mind doesn't say, oh, that's wonderful. I want more of that. It just says, okay, it's an unpleasant feeling. If it's a neutral feeling, the mind remains there without the sense of I. It doesn't say, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. And this is because it starts to see the impermanence of all conditioned experiences. And it starts to notice every time it does take things personally, that there is Dukkha. So eventually it just completely lets go and has total equanimity. That's why it's seeing things as they actually are. Now you need good equanimity. You need strong levels of equanimity. If your equanimity is weak, what should you do? Look at this chart, right? If yatabhutanyanadasanam or equanimity is not stable, what do you do? You bring in the preceding factor, which is collectedness, samadhi, which means what? Being more attentive to what is going on. If your collectedness is weak, what does that mean? You don't have enough comfort. You don't have enough, enough happiness. If you don't have enough happiness, what does that mean? You need to bring up more tranquility, more relaxation. <laughs> if your mind has restlessness and agitation, what does that mean? You don't have enough enjoyment in the practice. In other words, you don't have enough piti. So the point of this practice is not to go, like I said in the beginning, not to go gung-ho and I have to meditate and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to try my hardest. Because all that's going to do is what? It's going to create restlessness. It's going to create tightness and tension. It's going to create disharmony. If you cannot enjoy the process, then you know that you're on the wrong track. You can see for yourself here. This is what the Buddha has said. The Buddha has talked about the practice, which is good in the beginning and good in the end. The Buddha has talked about the practice that's easy in the beginning and easy in the end. There is a practice that is easy in the beginning and difficult in the end. There is a practice that is difficult in the beginning and easy in the end. And then there's a practice that is Difficult in the beginning and difficult in the end. Who in their right mind would want to choose that? Maybe some sadomasochists. Who knows? But the Buddha has given you these choices. Which one would you take? Easy in the beginning and easy in the end. So what does it mean, easy in the beginning? Feeling joy, feeling happy, feeling relief right from the get-go. There's no special thing that you need to do. Just be here right now and let go. Relax, bring tranquility and enjoy the process. This is why I talked about in the beginning, you guys are on vacation. Smile more, laugh, enjoy yourselves. Right? Take it easy. The more you do this, the easier the practice becomes. See, oftentimes you might be met with a hindrance that is just all-pervading. It's just 
it's always there and it's like I can't I can't deal with this hindrance what's going on here well that's the thing it's your attitude your perception of that hindrance right <coughs> you've allowed this hindrance to be there and become this cloud over your mind a dark stormy cloud over your mind and so you've given it power by saying it's overwhelming but the more you smile, the more you relax, the more you laugh, the more you see it as it's this big thing to, oh, it's only this. The more you can smile at your hindrances, the more you can laugh at your hindrances, the more you can be amused by your monkey mind, the more relaxed you'll be and the less the hindrance takes hold. It's only when you make it difficult for yourself by saying this thing, I can't get rid of it. And then in the trying to keep getting rid of it and getting rid of it, you're only adding more fuel. You're having what's known as a Yoniso Manisakara. What is Yoniso Manisakara? Yoni, which is the source of things, right? It's directly, it, it basically means womb, right? The origin of something. Manasikara, manas, the heart, the mind, right? To take something to heart, that's what it literally means, manasikara. So in other words, you are looking at the origin of things. This is how the Buddha rediscovered dependent origination. After his experience, he sat under the Bodhi tree and he said, there is this aging and death. And then he asked, but what is the cause and condition for this aging and death? And he waited. This is a process of using your intuition. He did the same thing and it came to him. Birth is the cause and condition for aging and death. Okay. Birth being the cause and condition for aging and death. What is the cause and condition for birth? He asked that question and he let it go. And then it came to him. Becoming is the cause and condition for birth. And likewise, in this way, using a Yoniso Manisakara, proper attention, or the way I translate it is attention rooted in reality. Right. What does that mean? Attention rooted in reality. Understanding that this reality is impermanent, liable to cause suffering, and therefore not me, not mine, not myself. The more you have that, and then treat the hindrance from that, rather than giving it improper attention, allowing your attention to fuel it, right? the more you just say, Okay, I see this hindrance. It's impermanent. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not myself. It's only this. The easier it is for you to let go of it. And then you experience joy. This is really the, the utility of Yoniso Manisikara. So when you experience that, when you have tranquility, when you have collectedness, then you have strong equanimity. Now that strong equanimity, right? First you experience it in the fourth jhana as a factor of the fourth jhana. By the time you get to the seventh, that is of nothingness, 
equanimity itself becomes the object. Why? Because prior to that, in infinite consciousness, you saw directly the impermanence, the dukkha, and the not-self of experiences. And your mind became quieter, and it experiences great degrees of equanimity. In the suttas, it's talked about, <laughs> it talks about the six or seven different kinds of perceptions. What does that mean? The six or seven different kinds of perceptions. The perception of impermanence leads to the perception of dukkha. The perception of dukkha leads to the perception of anatta, the impersonal nature of things. The perception of anatta leads to the perception of equanimity. The perception of equanimity leads to the perception of disenchantment. The perception of disenchantment leads to the perception of dispassion. And the perception of dispassion leads to the perception of cessation. The perception of liberation. So if you have strong amounts of equanimity and you're perceiving that, eventually what happens is, your mind lets go of even the equanimity and remains disenchanted, nibbida. What does that mean, disenchantment? You've had enough of suffering. You've had enough of all these different kinds of mental activities that are going on. In the beginning, you know, it's like, oh, there's a very interesting story here. Let me take a look at this. And your mind goes there. And what happens? You're having more and more mental proliferation. <coughs> more and more papancha. But eventually you realize, if I go down this pathway, it just leads to the same thing. More and more papancha. And so you get tired of that. You're like, I've had enough of this. I'm disenchanted by this. One of the analogies that I use of that is, let's say uh, the chef decides to make you your favorite meal. Right? And he makes it just the way you like it. And your mind is uplifted by that. And you're hungry and you say, yes, I'm going to eat it. And you enjoy it. You take great pleasure in eating it. And the chef says, I've made a second helping. And so you say, okay, yeah, I'll have a second helping. This was so good, I want some more. So you take the second helping and you eat that. And the chef says, no, no, I have some more left for you. Here's a third helping. And your mind now says, you know, I'm kind of full, but I don't want to be pol impolite. So I'll take the third helping. So you take the third helping and the chef says, I have more for you. And now what was a source of great pleasure is now a source of suffering, right? It's a source of pain. Now you're saying to yourself, I can't have any more. That's enough. I'm going to go, I'm going to get sick. In fact, Nibbida also means revulsion. Right? Which means you've just had enough. So if you're still enchanted by thoughts, you're still enchanted by this experience and that experience, you become a chaser of experiences, which means that your equanimity is not strong. The moment your equanimity is strong and you're finally tired of chasing experiences, tired of trying to analyze what is this, trying to figure out what is this, trying to rationalize and make all kinds of assumptions, conceptualize this and that. When you're tired of all of that, 
then you have disenchantment. And at this point, your mind starts to experience the quiet mind. From that disenchantment, there is what's known as dispassion, viraga, vairagya, dispassion, detachment, being completely unaffected. Now your mind is like a non-stick pen. Nothing sticks to it. It's like Teflon. Whatever kinds of distractions come up, they just go right through you. Your mind is insulated in this dispassion. It's protected by this field of dispassion. Now, the thing is, you cannot bring up disenchantment. You can't bring up dispassion. But they are direct fruits of having strong equanimity. So if you notice your dispassion isn't there, it means your disenchantment isn't there. If your disenchantment isn't there, what does it mean? Go back one step. Cultivate more equanimity. This is what I've been telling some of you. That when you get into the eighth jhana, when you get into neither perception or non-perception, and you notice your mind is still interested in looking at this, still agitated by this, still disturbed by the flurry of thoughts in neither perception or non-perception. What will I tell you to do? First, try to relax, tranquilize, and let go. But if you notice that that's not working, what should you do? do go back to radiating equanimity. Right? Once you radiate equanimity again, what happens? Now your equanimity is back. Now it's stable. And then you relax back into quiet mind. And then the disenchantment naturally arises. So, and you might have to do this <clears throat> a couple dozen times in a sit. That in itself leads to disenchantment. You're like, finally, I'm done with this. Enough of this cycling back. Right? And as a result of that, you have this passion. Now, in that dispassion, what you will see is there is very little, if at all, any kind of vibration in the mind. Total still mind. <coughs> and as you get deeper, you start to experience what's known as the signless collectedness of mind. At this point, you get out of your own way. Don't do anything. Absolutely nothing. In just seeing that something is arising, your mind lets go of it. So you come in and out of self and not self. You come in and, in and out of conceit arising, conceit going away. And eventually, while you're here, when the last formations in the mind completely cease, which are mental formations that allow you to feel and perceive, your mind dips into the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. And in that, you experience what's known as vimutti, vimukti. So at one level, that vimukti is total freedom from all conditioned experience. At a higher level, that vimukti, on a broader macro level, that vimukti is coming to some experience of an attainment. Why? Because then you become liberated from the first three fetters.
when you become a stream enter. You then get liberated from stronger craving, stronger aversion when you go into once returner, Sakadagami. You become fully liberated from all sensual craving and aversion when your mind attains to Anagami. And then you have let go of all conceit, all restlessness, all craving for even meditation itself, all ignorance. And now your mind is experiencing the ultimate liberation, that is, the liberation from the wheel of samsara. No longer do you have to come back. Now you're completely liberated. So this is what is vimukti. Right? So you experience the cessation of all phenomena and your mind connects or touches the Nibbana element. Now when you go through this, your mind then experiences at the ultimate stage the total destruction of the taints, right? The three taints, generally speaking. The taint of ignorance, the taint of craving for existence, and the taint of sensual desire. You have totally become immune to any of those viruses, right? And now in the Sutta, in the Upanisha Sutta, it talks about how this comes about. Because there is the destruction of the taints and there is the knowledge that the taints have been destroyed. But preceding that, there is an experience that happens. And that is that the mind sees such is form, such is its arising, such is its passing away. Such is feeling, such is its arising, such is its passing away. Such is perception, such its arising, such its passing away. Such are formations, such their arising, such their passing away. Such is consciousness, such its arising, such is its passing away. In other words, it sees the links of dependent origination. If you go back to reading the Digha Nikaya in the Mahapadana Sutta, there it talks about Vipassi Buddha's journey. In there, in the passage Buddha's journey, it talks about how he looks at the links of dependent origination and finally letting go, he understands the arising and passing away of the five aggregates and lets, lets go of total identification from them and experiences total liberation. So ultimately, finally, what happens is you let go of identifying with any modality of experience. And you just leave it as it is. When you leave it as it is, no craving can arise. No aversion can arise. No ignorance can arise. No wrong view can arise. So as a result of which, there is the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. This is the reviewing knowledge. In your own experience, when you attain stream entry, there is a reviewing process. Something happened. I let go of something. It feels like an ocean of suffering has been let go. That ocean of suffering that's been let go is because you have locked, locked up any possibility. You have let go of any possibility of any rebirth in a realm that is lower than the human realm. And eventually you notice there is very little craving left in me. 
and eventually you notice there is no craving left in me. And then eventually you notice I have understood the path completely. I have total realization of the Four Noble Truths. So this process of the transcendental links of dependent origination essentially is cyclical again. Because when you experience the Vimutti of experiencing the right view, of letting go of the first three fetters, what do you do? I'll tell you, congratulations, that's wonderful. Take it easy today, walk around, enjoy this. And then go back to sit when you're ready. Fine, because now you do the same thing again. But now you have stronger faith. Now you have total conviction in the path. Now right view has started to become established in your mind. <coughs> and then you repeat the process again. It's a process of rinse and repeat. Until finally you experience that final link of the destruction of the taints altogether. So this process is to be enjoyed. This process is to be experienced with great comfort and ease. The more you do this, the greater degrees of pro progress you will make. It really is that simple. The mind has a tendency to complicate things. Oh, if I only did this. But that hindrance is still blocking me. That hindrance is still there. What do I do with that hindrance? Stop treating it that way. It's only this. The moment you change it from, oh, what do I do to, oh, it's only this. Oh, it's you again. Okay, I'm letting you go. Right? The more you have that attitude, the easier the practice becomes. Stop trying to bring up loving kindness. Stop trying to bring up the joy. Stop trying to radiate. Just relax in your mind and allow the mind to do what it's doing. Your intention is setting the course, changing the rudder here and there. You are the captain of your ship. Right? You're just watching the rudder move a little bit from your intention. And then what do you do? Just make sure everything is fine. Just watch. Just observe. Something's out of place. Right? The compass is loose. We're going in a different direction. Okay. 6R. 4R. Let go. Come back. The more you have that attitude of just watching this process like a movie, that metacognition, that cognition of cognition, that ability to see how mind moves. The more you do that, the less you'll have to try for something. Then it just becomes a natural, automatic, organic process. A naturally progressive process. Not something that you need to construct. This is actually a process of deconstructing and letting go. That is the only way you will experience true cessation of suffering. By letting go. Any questions? Um, so, 
the perfection of noble eightfold path happens only for arhant uh, before that you are fine tuning it can we perfect five precepts uh, anywhere on the path yes absolutely so uh, even before stream entry even before stream entry okay it's it's uh, rooted more in intention yeah okay uh, second question on precepts um, if we try to maintain uh, the three additional precepts that we take during retreat uh, any like combination of them uh, is there any any mention in sutras uh, where the way you explain you know benefits uh, fruits of holy life uh, yeah. for the first five precepts is there anything mentioned for these three other sutras for uh, well for example like not taking the noonday meal right has a good effect on your body first and foremost because the less you have to digest the easier it is for your mind to focus that's one thing that's a practical experience uh letting go of <coughs> like entertainment and dance and all of that is basically like you're less uh attracted to sensual pleasures right that allows you to do that uh letting go of uh you know trying to beautify the body and this and that that allows you to be less identified <coughs> with the body less conceit arises from that But if you keep the five basic precepts, that's a good beginning. That's a good start. Now, that, like I said, I mean, just as a comment, uh, I remember. I don't know how many of you know Venerable Obasa, but she's a nun from Hong Kong, and she usually comes to Damasuka for about two, maybe one or two months out of the year. And so she was with me while I was giving the uh, retreats. and uh we were having different interviews and she was with me and she said you know some people are asking about the fifth precept like is that negotiable because i like to have a glass of wine once in a while you know what's the big deal it's fine maybe smoke a joint or whatever it is and so uh she was telling me that when she went to norway there uh because they have such a culture of like drinking is just within you know the culture it's like the even the monk over there the abbot over there was like okay you guys can keep the four precepts it's okay right but no no the fifth precept is non-negotiable you'll see for yourself i mean even when you drink that one sip of wine or one sip of beer it's like oh maybe i shouldn't have done that yeah you immediately have that little regret in your mind so make sure you keep that fifth precept All right, who's next? Acharya, uh, so yeah, so the whole process uh, initially when it happens, it's very quick, very easy. But as you progress more, you get to know labels, milestones, and you know you're uh, more attached to things basically. Like this is this state. Let me go to this sutta and compare this and to do this. and then it itself becomes hindrance that prolongs the process basically yeah uh how does one deal with this you still have to have that beginner's mindset so that means you need to have enough disenchantment even with the dhamma i'll tell you from my own experience like when i started out on this path and had the experiences that i had i didn't even watch one single dhamma talk in the beginning right and even after only when i had to watch a dhamma talk was when i was doing the online retreat bhante's dhamma talks but after that it wasn't like <coughs> there was like this thing that i have to watch more dhamma talks didn't do that 
didn't go into the suttas. Now, I started this practice in 2016. I only started reading the suttas in the end of 2020. No Dhamma books, no nothing. I decided I will go as deep as I can into my practice. I don't want to have to go into the suttas and have them influence what's going on. Because there can be a tendency for the mind. I mean, yes, it's a wonderful thing to do it because it inspires and it cultivates the pamoja, <laughs> the joy in the Dhamma. But it's a double-edged sword, right? Because now you know what's going on. And now it's like you, like you said, you're looking for those milestones. But because I had the luxury of being a beginner, for me, I could just go from one thing and not even think about it. And I just write in my report, this is what happened. And I wrote this and that. And then the teacher would say, okay, now you do this. Okay. And you just do that. And it's a, it was a process of rinsing and repeating. And so I had no resistance to all of that. Now, if you have been somebody who's, you know, seen that and looking out for that, what do you do? I always say the first time is easy. The subsequent times for the attainments is much harder because now you know the path. But the key there is to keep treating it like it's something fresh. The key there is to keep treating it like every meditation will be different. I could experience something completely new. Maybe I thought I was experiencing the seven jhana, but maybe there is another level or quality of the seven jhana that I haven't yet experienced. Let me see how it is. So if you bring that sense of novelty, <coughs> that each sit will bring something unexpected, some unexpected outcome that is towards the positive, <coughs> and just let go of that and just sit like you're watching a TV show, you're just like engrossed in the TV show, right? You watch one episode and you watch the next episode and you're thinking, what's going to happen now? That's the same attitude you have. What's going to happen in this meditation? Let's see. Instead of having preconceived expectations, okay, now I'm going to go to the seventh jhana. And then what happens there? You experience meditation fatigue. Things become stale. And you don't really progress after that. So if you treat each meditation onto its own, as something that is fresh and new, and something new can happen, then you will see more progress. <coughs> Let me sense one more question. Um, like, according to your experience, is it true that, you know, uh, some of the higher fetters, it takes more effort uh, to deal with them uh, in comparison, for example, self-view, or if you compare, compare self-view or rights and rituals versus sense, desire, and ill will? Is it true that it takes more effort to deal with those things? It takes more mindfulness and hence more effort because sensual desires are almost ingrained, right, from the get-go. The intellectual understanding of not-self is much easier. But that process of identifying with sensual desires is from day one of our existence in this human existence. And it's, carrying, it's being carried forward by... Or it's carrying forward all kinds of experiences from past existences as well. So it is much more difficult. And beyond that, of course, conceit and restlessness and so on. Okay. Um, In fact, there's a, there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about, and it's, I mean, what he says is basically, all right, you have so many stream enterers, you have so many once-returners, you have so many non-returners. That was all easy 
now starts the real effort. Now starts the real work of becoming an arhat. So imagine that. I mean, if the Buddha is saying that. <laughs> okay. Um, one more question around uh, fetter of sense, uh, sense desire and ill will. So as I understand, the fetter of sense desire pertains to five sense bases, basically, because uh, the sense base of mind is um, still there because jhana, clinging to jhana, right? right? What about ill will? Um, what, what, what about ill will to the thought uh, for a mind sense base? Yeah, there's still ill will there. So that's still a level of aversion that you have to let go of. Okay, it would be there after Nagami as well. Ill will to thought, basically. <coughs> yeah, so <coughs> all ill will will go away for the Anagami. Okay. Including ill will to any concept, idea, thought. So the sense desire pertains to five sense spaces, but ill will, all ill will, including mind as well. That's right. Okay, thank you. Right behind me. Uh, I have two questions. One is the difference I wanted to understand between intention and attention that I'm not getting. Means intention is towards Nibbana and attention is towards our mind. Is that? No. Intention can move your attention to one thing or the other. Intention can be an inclination to Nibbana. It's not that it is an inclination to Nibbana. Intention can be any intention towards something. Attention is through which consciousness flows. It's the directionality or the direction of consciousness, where consciousness is going. Like if you're paying attention to what it is that you're seeing, then there's eye consciousness there. If you're paying attention to what it is that you're hearing, then there's your consciousness that's there. But the intention to pay attention to the eyes rather than the ears is the intention. And second is the difference between sensations and feelings. They are one and the same, sensation and feeling. They're just different words for the same thing. Okay. Um, for me, there's still a bit um, uncertainty of how to interpret some, some precepts. For example, the fifth one um, with, with taking drugs. Like last time, uh, we talked about um, that coffee is, is all right, or tea, um, or that even taking, uh, I think you mentioned mushrooms, taking once is okay with the intention to broaden the mindset or, or something okay, like that. Okay, so first and foremost, let's make sure that when we talk about mushrooms, we're talking about in a clinical setting. <laughs> it's not like I'm intending that this mushrooms is going to help me with dealing with my trauma. You're doing it under medicinal thing. Even alcohol can be taken if it's been prescribed by a doctor for the purposes of, you know, helping something. Like some medication in the past had been diluted in alcohol or whatever it is. <clears throat> so the idea is it's all about, number one, your intention. And number two, what is the purpose of that particular substance? Now, with coffee and tea, again, like I said, I can't tell you because I don't drink tea or coffee. Like, I used to, but I found that it's much better not to drink tea and coffee. Now, I know of meditators who might be addicted to coffee. It's like they have to have coffee in the morning. They need to have their two cups of coffee in the day or whatever. 
Actually, if you think about coffee, it is psychoactive, right? It creates some kind of a uplifted feeling and whatnot. Um, so I would use your discretion. I would say use your discretion to what you think makes sense. What I will say is eventually you might want to taper off of coffee and tea until no more. But it's one of the more, let's say, harmless kinds of uh, uh, substances than, let's say, alcohol and other things. Mm -hmm. um, and with, with harsh speech, um, I feel like in, in part of some cultures, it's, cultures, cultures, it's just so much part of the daily life. I don't know that when you step into shit, you say like, oh, shit, yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's very interesting because in America, that, that word is bad. But I hear it everywhere in India. Like, it's just part of, the, it's just part of it. Like, you know, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. But it's all about context. It's about context and it's about intention. Harsh speech can be used in the sense of, like, you're actually wanting to harm another person. You know? So abusive speech is that. Harsh speech can also be speech that creates agitation in the mind. It creates, you know it's harsh because it just creates this aggravation. So, and then there are some cultures where people are just naturally very boisterous, you know. But at the end of the day, that also is not helpful. And then there's a speech which is uh, restless speech, right? So restless speech there would be speech that's like, Speaking for the sake of speaking, like you can't deal with the sound of silence. There's a level of discomfort <coughs> comfort with silence. And so you talk about the news, you talk about the weather, you talk about stocks, you talk about crypto, you talk about this and that. And just because. So it's better not to talk about these things. Like the Buddha has talked about it as the talk of kings and the talk of this kingdom here. Have you heard of what happened there and all of these things? It's really not useful. It's really not useful. So with harsh speech, understand the context and understand the intention behind it. Okay. Is there um, some place where you can read more about the precepts and how to interpret them? So <coughs> once you start keeping the precepts, what you will notice is as you keep each precept, your mind lets go of further, further um, hindrances. And then you start, to, you start to navigate through the precepts in a way you're, you think, does this make more sense? So it's more of using your intuition. It's more of using your own experience to help define what that is. At the very surface level, we know what it means when we say keep the precepts. It means not to kill, not to harm, not to take what is not given, meaning not to steal. Without, or not to borrow without asking, not to cheat on your partner, not to indulge any kind of sensual misconduct or sexual misconduct, not to indulge in any kind of, um, you know, overindulgences in things, uh, not to lie, even if it's a white lie, right? For the sake of manipulating things, not to indulge in abusive speech. Use your speech in a way that doesn't cause harm to others. And see if it's the right time to speak or not. I'll talk about more about this tomorrow when we talk about the Eightfold Path. But one of the ways to think about right speech is the word THINK. The acronym THINK, right? T-H-I-N-K. 
So T is, is it the right time to say what you want to say? H is, is it honest? Do you know it to be true? I is, what is the intention behind it? Is it a wholesome intention, unwholesome intention? N is for, is it necessary for you to say what it is that you have to say? Or can it wait? Or is it even needed? And K is, can you still say it with kindness? So if you have this in your mind, then you'll notice that most of the time you maybe not need to speak. The best kind of speech is total silence. Only speak when you really need to. And you'll notice that results in mental noble silence a lot. Right here, right here. So I had a question on, as we progress, having not experienced disenchantment, I'm asking someone who has, how does one live and work in a world where we're paid to be completely enchanted? <laughs> I, I speak personally. That's why I don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> And so I think for me, the question is, how do you draw these, or do these boundaries naturally get drawn as the practice <laughs> finds its place in your life? <coughs> when you mean boundaries, what do you mean? Like? In the sense of like mental proliferation or going into, so I, I'm a researcher. Mm -hmm. um, I need to go into information. I need to analyze. Yeah. And I see how that also goes into my personal life. And so that's why the boundaries. So now... I'm wondering to, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about, oh, like, when does the professional deep, like, the, you know, yeah. the, the livelihood deep, when does she take over? Yeah. I think that's a good point that you bring up because we are taught in school as well uh, to analyze things, to reflect on things, to examine things, to dissect and discuss and so on. And these all have their utility. They all have their purpose because it helps us to function in this world where we need to get a job, let's say, or make a living and so on. But there's oftentimes a tendency for people to bring their work back home. And especially now when you have work from home, that complete you know, boundary between workplace and home is completely gone now. And so the idea of working eight hours is now gone to like you're working pretty much all the time. Even if you think you're not working, your mind's always like, okay, what do I have to do tomorrow? Do I have to file this? Do I have to do that? All of that. That's where mindfulness and attention are very useful to create that boundary and be like, you know what? I'm going to make it a point that maybe after I come back from work, I'm going to switch off everything and meditate for 30 minutes and let go. Let whatever comes up, whatever restless thoughts come up about work, I'm going to deal with them by letting them go. Let them come up and I'm going to relax them. And once I'm done with that, now you have this sort of border, right? There's work, then there's meditation, and now it's this gate into which you're entering, which is now relaxing. Now you're just taking it easy for the day. That's one way of looking at it. So for me, when I'm navigating into the world, I'm not thinking about what talk I'm going to give. I'm not, talk, I'm not thinking about, you know, who's next for the interview or not. I don't have any process of preparation for anything. I just come into it and start talking. Hopefully, it starts to make sense to everyone. That's it. And that's because I have complete trust in, like, everything is going to unfold the way it needs to. So 
until you get to that point where it's like, okay, I can totally trust in life. You have to keep letting go of processes where you're trying to analyze things and you're trying to make decisions and you're trying to make uh, SWOT analysis and you know, all these other things. And then trust your intuition. That comes when much later when you really trust your ability to intuit what is required for each situation. And the more you exercise that, the more you do it, the less mental proliferation arises. Because now it finds that there's greater um, efficiency in using intuition than using all of this mental power that causes a lot of drain on your energy. And so because of that, you'll find more energy, which means you have more time to practice. You'll have more time to do the things that you want to do. And still, at the end of the day, not feel completely exhausted. Okay, my next question is on, I think it's Lath and Torpor. Um, it's connected to what you were also saying, like try to relax into the practice, try to have fun, try not to do, you know, don't try too hard. Um, I'm also super early in my practice, but I noticed today when I was trying to be gentle, I was nodding off. And yeah. I had to come back with some level of verve of being like, oh my God, I'm going to like really send out this love. And that really did elevate the practice for them. And mm. so I'm like, oh, is this like bad behavior? Like it was just today <laughs> I was having a hard day. Yeah. So with sloth and torpor, it's all about making small adjustments. Like, yeah, there's a tendency to be like, oh, I see sloth and torpor. I'm going to try pushing a little bit more. And in doing that, what happens is you have this ricochet effect. It's like, now there's more restlessness, and then suddenly it goes back into sloth and torpor. So you have to make small, very small, tiny, incremental steps of, let me try a little bit more, and then wait and see what happens. And maybe you need more, so you try a little bit more and wait and see what happens. That's the way to deal with it. Right. Okay, last question is, how do you tell the difference between sloth and torpor and when your body just needs a break, just needs mm. to go to sleep? You do feel some kind of physical exhaustion compared to the mental sloth and torpor. So, like, you might notice pains and aches in the body. You might notice that uh, there is a sense of, like, draining feeling in your body. That's when you know you need to go rest. And there is something called meditation fatigue, like I talked about earlier, where at some point, there's just, you've lost steam in your meditation. That time you just pack up, take it easy, go for a walk, enjoy the day, and come at it with freshness. Thank you. You had a question here? Uh, one. Ah, yeah. Uh, there are advantages of keeping the precepts, but there are certain disadvantages also. For example, uh, you might quit from the gossip group or you might quit from the clubbing group and all. You find that as a disadvantage? <laughs> You will be alone. Right? You will not be in a group. Yeah. So the Buddha has talked about this too. I mean, it depends on your priorities, right? It just depends on your priorities. He's talked about, you're the one who asked the question about good company and bad company, let's say. And the Buddha has said, if you can't find any good company, better to walk alone. Right? So you might have heard of the statement, gossip ends in a wise person's ears. Meaning, somebody who is wise does not interact with the gossip, nor do they add to the gossip, nor do they take what they've heard and 
say to another person. No point in gossiping. So it's really a good thing. I mean, there are no disadvantages to the precepts, really. I mean, maybe you have to quit your job, but maybe you'll find a better job, right? Oftentimes people have these dichotomy, these dilemmas where it's like, but I'm, you know, I'm in a sales team and I have to lie about our sales figures or I have to do this or I have to do that. Quit your job. And I realize I say that being jobless. <laughs> For me, it's easier said than done, like quit your job. So I know it, it can be a challenge, but you have to look at yourself and see what are your priorities. Acharya, uh, in a day-to-day -day work life setting, uh, when we deal with clients, especially in government clients, we have to go with some kickbacks. So yeah. I just thought it, about it this. is part of my life. So even if it doesn't go through me, it goes through somebody. Yeah. So I'm not happy with that. Yeah. So how could we deal with that? So first you have to understand what you do for yourself and how you deal with it is your responsibility. What happens down the chain is not your responsibility. How people re react to what's going on is their responsibility, number one. Number two is if you do see that there is a direct chain of command where you're, <coughs> you're pushing this and saying, do this, then you, need to, then you need to reflect and see if this makes sense for you. Because at some point of time, I have to be the point of contact. Yeah. So there comes the issue. Yeah. I might not be involved in any point of transaction, yeah. but at some point of time, I have to be the point of contact because I am clear. I have my <coughs> transactions clear. Yeah. I am not anywhere involved, but this is me who is supposed to contact the person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about samsara. It is so complicated. But I would say just do the best you can. Really, if it's in your control to do the best you can where you have the ability not to have to deal with these things, then do that. Yeah. I was waiting for the questions to end <laughs> because I am doubtful about the usefulness of the question that I want to ask. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of senior meditators here. I'm the beginner. For us, meditators, Nibbana is the ultimate goal. We are walking on this path to achieve Nibbana. Because Nibbana ends the sufferings. Now for any Arhat, that will end the suffering. That's the last birth that the Arhat takes when he achieves Arhathood. He or she <coughs> has traveled through several existences to reach to that birth beyond which there won't be any more births. Yeah. Now, since they are traveling through several lives and they want to end it by ending sufferings, mm -hmm. joy, Nibbana has, I don't know what has, what word to use, right. something like joy or bliss or whatever, something like that more of this. Now, the life that has traveled through so many existences and by achieving Nibbana, we are going to end the suffering and therefore, that's the end. When did this life begin? And how did it begin? Which life? That life which ends in Nibbana. First life. 
the life of that arhat right. who achieves nibbana yeah now that life he sees he, that consciousness what is traveling right. through several existences no so it has begun somewhere mm what is that beginning mm and how does it begin <laughs> how far do you want to go no different saying because another we can go from one contraction and expansion of the universe or we can go to a 100 quadrillion expansion and contraction of the universe you see the thing is even the buddha looked for a beginning to this and look for a beginning of his series of lives and he couldn't find it he said samsara is beginningless samsara is beginningless there is no beginning to it so trying to look for <coughs> trying to look for a first cause is um it's a fruitless effort because all you'll see is the more uh, the same stuff more of the same stuff and at a certain point the buddha saw the same thing it's like okay it happened here it happened a thousand lifetimes ago it's just the same repetitive cycle that's going on and on and on in different degrees i meaning you know maybe it wasn't like he was in this existence as a certain kind of person he was a trader let's say or he was a craftsman or he was this but he was still dealing with similar kinds of situations for anybody for any existence so it's like uh, bhava the bhava is basically <coughs> beginningless so many different kinds of habitual tendencies that you go through so many different kinds of life situations that you go through in not only in this life which you have a tendency to repeat so imagine from going from one existence to the other how many different life situations are completely on repeat that's how samsara is there's no beginning there it just keeps going but there is an end that's the beauty of it thank you one small thing mm. which is not actually uh, we have heard only not read it is in the uh, uh, stories about the jataka stories that buddha is walking on a on on the path going somewhere <coughs> yeah. and one <coughs> extremely common lady a woman along with her husband is going passing by and she happens to see the buddha and she says ah he is my son mm. he is my son a lay person i don't know whether she is tree mentorer or at what stage she is that is not known but she is an ordinary lady mm. now can a ordinary person and then buddha told seems to have told somebody that no no in one life right she was my mother right now an ordinary person like her can also remember and identify somebody who was her son in previous birth oh absolutely so being able to see past lives doesn't mean that you have to be enlightened doesn't mean you have to be a stream enter doesn't mean you have to do anything even other uh, traditions if you're not following the buddhist path you can still go into seeing your past lives it's still quite possible it's just one of the the siddhis one of the iddhis that is possible one of the powers or faculties that is available to anybody if they want to try so in in buddhism uh, is there any special type of meditation that or effort that one has to make to get to that siddhis yes complete mastery of the fourth jhana and then from that fourth jhana directing your mind towards the cultivation of one of those powers well, thank you very much
I was searching for this answer for the last few years. Thank you very much. Behind you. Uh, sir, this is a question related to uh, like we are practicing, we have found the path of TWIM and we are walking on this path. Can one carries this uh, path in next lives? If at all, if you burn. Why do you want to carry it in the next lives? Just life? if he under knows about this path. Yeah. Like in, I read in Path Nibbana that uh, if one practices the TWIM, even in next life it will help him to mm. help, help him. It can. It's possible, but try to just end this life itself. <laughs> <laughs> just had a thought. Yeah. Uh, I had a bit of proliferating questions mm -hmm. myself, uh, so end of the okay. talk today. So first question is, uh, uh, it's stemming from yesterday, but you mentioned to not uh, express immediate grief when one loved one passes away. What's the reasoning behind <coughs> that? Because, uh, you know, in general, at least in India, uh, when people are actually consoling, you know, uh, people, they say things like, you know, it hurts the soul of the uh, mm. departed and so on. So, but what's the, uh, and it could be, you know, mentioned somewhere in scriptures or it could just, it's just a way uh, yeah. to... Because the, the consciousness is there, being present, is aware of that. And it can, it can create agitation there in some confusion of what's going on. It's better to, uh, that's what I'm saying, it's better to chant mantras or you know, suttas or do something that keeps the mind uplifted. And this is from also Bhante Vimaramsi's experience. When he was younger, much younger, he would go to different hospices, or he, there was one hospice actually he would go to, which was the, managed by his mom. And he would go from place, uh, person to person, and even if they're Christian, even if they're Muslim, even if they're Hindu, he would read from their particular scripture and make them uplifted. So that if being uplifted, they have the opportunity for you know, a better rebirth. And that's what he did. So that's the idea, is by being in a, in a, in a grief, I mean, acting out of grief while that body is there or while that consciousness might still be there can uh, create agitation for that being. And here's another tip. Uh, when you yourselves die, right, and you see the light at the end of the tunnel, before you go into the light of the, at the end of the tunnel, try to look around you. That's all I'll say. So, uh, you also mentioned uh, about the 18 to 72 hours window. So, should then we avoid any expression of grief for that whole duration? Yes. If yes, then do you know of any mention in Hindu scripture? Uh, because I'm, I'm asking because I have a lot of aging people in, in my vicinity and I just want to know how I can convince other people like yeah. you know to to follow uh, this this kind of a thing uh, to absolute level. yeah the only thing you can really do at that point is comfort the person and that's okay comforting the person and try to make them think about the good good things that that person has done in <coughs> the person who's deceased and that'll start making them uplifted and by doing that then even the deceased if they're around will hear that and keep uplifted 
that makes sense uh, one more question on mm-hmm. this uh, you mentioned not to do any rituals in in that window so should we not move the body at all uh, yeah this was asked by another person in the interview and they said if the body is burned does that have an effect on the consciousness no the consciousness is separate from the body now. so even if you decide you want to bury the body or cremate the body or whatever it's fine but just make sure that you do it in a way that is peaceful and without much you know yeah, uh, no loud yeah. crying and yeah. so on okay uh one last question <laughs> so uh when a person is on ventilator mm. uh first we don't know what's the state of the machine <coughs> Right. whether it wants to fight to stay back or whether it is ready to let go and we are causing suffering by extending their lifetime so of course there is no way to know that yeah but uh, the bigger question is uh, if one decides to pull up the plug out of compassion in in their mind the intention is compassion uh, but it's even with the intention of compassion there are in a way killing so what is the impact on their karma that's one and second uh, so if i am the decision maker but the pull, plug is pulled by of course a hospital staff how is it impacting them okay so i think the way to look at it is when we talk about things like life support um i would say that's a process of trying to prolong that life beyond its time of death let's say that's one way of looking at it i i would see nothing wrong with ending uh, life support before that if you try to do euthanasia then it's definitely killing but if the body is ready to go naturally and there's life support and letting go of that life support you're not really doing anything <clears throat> this was a question asked by somebody to bonte where they had a lot of guilt that uh, their father was under life support and uh, she felt like maybe she had done something that was unwholesome and bonte said no because life support is to keep that life going but if the life is naturally ready to go and taking out those uh equipment that prolongs that life then all you're allowing is for that body to or that being to continue that natural process of going away so it has no karmic effect even if the mind stream is not ready to uh, let go that you allow the mind to do okay so it it, it won't impact no. uh, one's karma at all Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, sir, actually, I I did not remember the uh, seizing of faculties. Like uh, when one goes death, what are the se- I did not remember the uh, sequence of seizing of faculty. Can you repeat, sir? Okay. So when we talk about the seizing of faculties, you're talking about the six sense bases, yes, right? Sir. Yeah. <coughs> so the way to look at it the first thing that goes to that uh, ceases is the sense of smell right and then what ceases is uh the sense of taste then what ceases is the sense of sight then what ceases is the sense of touch then what ceases is the sense of hearing and finally the mind thank you sir this is beyond beyond that it's the mind at the level of mind yeah
So the person should be mindful at that time. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it. If you have mindfulness, there won't be any craving. The reason why should one look around? I told you, I'll tell you, and that's and that's all I'll say. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's all I'll say. Just remember that yeah, when yeah. you're dying. Yes, 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 yes. You should look around like this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, something which relates to what Madam had just asked. She said, uh, "There's nothing wrong in removing the life support when you're uh, technically prolonging." <coughs> it. Hmm? Because you are only technically prolonging the life. Right. Yeah. Okay. What happens to the person whose duty is to execute yeah. the people with life sentence? Yeah, it's terrible karma. What is their? Is it, is it their karma or they are made to do this by somebody else? Even if they're made to do it, they have the choice to say, I don't want to do this. So it's still bad karma. So that livelihood is actually yeah. a terrible one. Yeah, wrong livelihood. Thank you. So the question is, okay, we talked about letting go of life support. That has no unwholesome karma. What about executioners? Jalads. That's the bad karma. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Let's share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.